God has put a friend in my life, a, a new friend in my life recently. And this uh, friend, new friend, doesn't really know the, the language, the lexicon, the lingo of the church, of Christianity. And it's so refreshing to be around him. You know anybody like that? And it's just, they've recently, he, he doesn't point to a specific time. He argues with me a little bit about this. We see a lot of things differently. But he doesn't point to a specific time or date or place where he said, hey, I trusted Jesus. But he said that the light has gone on. It's been more like an evolution of the dimmer switch being turned up. And even though he doesn't know the language and lingo like some of us, many of us, it's just so refreshing to hear him talk about God's love in his heart and his love for other people. And it's just a genuine faith. By contrast, as we're walking through this book called James, I believe the weight of it, it leans on us a good bit. If you've read along, at least here on Sunday mornings, if you've been here or been able to listen online the last few weeks, or if you read this letter on your own, it, it puts a weight on you. It puts a weight on me in teaching it. Because honestly, James, if you studied anything about how we got our Bibles, which at first almost destroyed my faith, and then it's strengthened my faith over the years. But to learn how we got our Bibles with the early church fathers, they questioned the authenticity of James. Do you know why? They questioned it because it seemed to contradict what Paul taught over and over about salvation is by faith. Okay, so we want to be clear on this. We preach this here that you cannot earn God's favor or approval. You can't work your way there. All of us, including the, the guy speaking now, in some ways I would say especially the guy speaking now because I'm the pastor and my sins are many. None of us can earn our way there. None of us are good enough. All of our righteousness, a prophet would say in Isaiah, it's as filthy rags. Can't get there. It's only by faith, by grace that we're saved, that any of us, that all of us are saved. But if you're saved, James says so strongly, it's going to be expressed. This faith is going to be expressed. There's, there's going to need to be fruit in your life. And I want that to, to lean on some of you, all of us to some extent, but some of you in particular. Because some of us may know the lingo but yet not be saved. It may not be genuine. We may have prayed that prayer because we wanted to escape hell when we were young. And we prayed that prayer, but there's no objective fruit or evidence in our lives that we're really followers of Jesus. So I don't want anybody to miss that this morning, especially next week or any of these weeks as we walk through this. I was with a group of pastors months ago, almost a year ago, and we prayed for the state of Mississippi, we prayed for our nation and our world, and one of the things we prayed for as we prayed about Mississippi is we prayed against the spirit of religiosity. And James talks about religion in chapter one, doesn't he remember that? If you were here last week, he talks about a pure and undefiled religion. You remember what it, what it is? He, he's talking about a, a faith that's legit, not an institutional faith, but a, a genuine faith. And he says that a pure and undefiled religion is what? It's, it's the one who cares for the orphans and the widows and keeps oneself unspotted from the world. In other words, we're going to practice it. We're going to walk it out and our faith is going to lead us to care about everybody who really matters. 
We've been looking at James in chapter 1. Remember, he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad to the dispersion. They're persecuted. They're scattered. And so he doesn't start off by telling light, fluffy jokes. He jumps right into it. And he says, hey, you're gonna, you need to count it all joy when you encounter trials. And he talks about the reality of temptation and how we're tempted and why and what that leads to. And then he talks about a faith that's legit, that's very genuine. And the implication, I'm trying to let it lean on you this morning, that it may not be genuine in all of us. And we could talk about it and we, we know the lingo. See, that's my problem. I know the lingo. You can ask me things about my faith and I can just cruise at a high altitude on autopilot and it sounds so good. But is it a part of who I am? Is it, is it really genuine? Let's read. We'll put it on the screen, but let's read James chapter 2. We're just going to roll through the first, I believe, first 13 verses. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. And you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. But if you do not commit, a mul uh, commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the liberty, under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And I love this expression, mercy triumphs over judgment. We need this verse, do you think? I think we really need this stretch of scripture. And I, I'll tell you why, maybe I'm guilty of being a preacher, but I, I wrote down three ideas this week. Reason we need this. First of all, we, we label. Secondly, we divide. And thirdly, we look at the outside. We label, that's in your heart. We divide, if you label, you tend to divide. And then we look at the outside. There's a story of a, a VIP man, he's a CEO, inflamed with his own self-importance and he and his wife are on vacation, they're traveling, they stop to get gas, he goes into the store, he comes out, he notices that his wife is talking to the service station attendant. And he asks, honey, what's, this, what's that about? He said, well, you know, I knew him. I used to know him. In fact, I dated him in high school. And smugly, he says, well, I bet you're thinking you're glad you married me, a CEO, and not him, a service station attendant. To which she replied, no, actually, I was thinking if I'd married him, he'd be a CEO and you would be the service station attendant. 
But we, we do that, don't we? This is what we do. We divide the world between CEOs and service station attendants, between Harvard graduates and high school dropouts, between millionaire movie stars and the man that makes parts down at the factory, between liberals and conservatives, Huffington Post and the Drudge Report, between people who think OJ did it and, well, everybody knows OJ did it. But we divide the world up, don't we? Her hair is too short. His hair is too long. Her ink is offensive. His tattoos are too many. The car they drive is too expensive. The house is too nice. They go on too many vacations. They go to public school. They go to private school. They homeschool. We label and we divide and we look at the outside. And Jesus relentlessly, I've chosen these words carefully, he relentlessly attacked that in the religious people of his day, those who look on the outside. But how much worse is it in our day? Social media and our obsession with celebrity world run amok. And we live in that world of Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, Vogue, People, Us Weekly, Entertainment Tonight, TMZ, GQ, and Brad Pitt will be done with Gwyneth, and he'll marry Jennifer, and then they divorce, and then he moves in with Angelina. Did I get that right? And then he, we need to know it all, right? We wanna know every move that they make. We're fascinated with the celebrity lifestyle. We wanna see these celebrities do amazingly extraordinary things, like walk out of restaurants, and take their dogs for a walk, and pick up their dry cleaning, and a sip an espresso at an elegant outdoor cafe. We wanna know it all. Inquiring minds wanna know about celebrities. We look on the outside. We label, we divide, and we look at the outside. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, don't do it. And he says it because he knows it's in our hearts. Don't do it. Don't show partiality. Now, there's a Greek word. It's a compound Greek word. I thought about putting it up for you, but I'd try to look too smart. Um, and it, I don't know if it fit on the screen. But it's a long Greek word that's used for partiality here. And it basically means don't discriminate. Don't show favoritism. But one expression is this, receiving the face. Receiving the face. I remember early on when we were dating and it was my first trip out west to meet her family. And there was this moment where we were together where I snuck into the uh, area of the bathroom where Susan was uh, doing stuff to her face. And she was applying a very complex assortment of stuff, of foundations and bases and creams and gels and lotions and powders and moisturizers and sprays and stuff. And I said to Susan, I receive your face, right? <laughs> like the face that I've seen with all, it was that moment where she knew I was seeing her for the first time without her makeup. You know what? I loved her with, that, with her makeup and without her makeup. I gotta be real careful what I'm saying now, right? I mean, this is, every guy's like, be careful. You're walking the line, you're walking the line, move on, make your point, move on, get back to the Bible, right? <laughs> I receive your face. It was that moment and every couple, if you've gone far in the relationship, there has been that moment where that happens, where the girl feels that way and the guy's like, hey, man. And whether we mean it or not, we go, baby, I like you better without makeup, right? 
Just one of those, we got that in our hip pocket, we know to say that one. I receive your face. And James is saying, this partiality thing is receiving things, the face, in a, in a not so good way. It's that way of, you know, like it says in 1 Samuel, God or man looks what? At the outward appearance you do, don't you? Man looks at the outward appearance. And by the way, this, is, this, this parable that James talks about that he gives us, it's, it's not about seeing, okay? He's not saying don't notice. He's saying don't give special treatment. But we look at the outside. In Acts chapter 10, I was thinking about this as I was preparing last night and watching Mississippi State lose their baseball game. I was thinking about this showing partiality segment or this truth, and I, I was thinking about what's coming up this week. And some of the leaders in our church are, we're going to have a rooftop party. And thinking of rooftop parties, Acts chapter 10, Peter has a rooftop moment where he goes to the rooftop, read Acts 10 later, and he has this dream, God gave him this, gave him this vision. There's a man named Cornelius, and Peter went up on the roof thinking he was going to receive one thing from the Lord, and God had a surprise for him. And what was that surprise? The surprise was the gospel is much bigger than you think it is. And what was national and tribal and localized is global, and it's for everybody. This good news is for everybody. And your world has to be opened up because you've been labeling and dividing and looking on the outside. And look what Peter says in Acts 10, 34, I believe it is. I love this expression because it's important as a leader. I, by the way, I love this first part. The second part's really what we're preaching, but the first part, every leader needs to hear this. I most certainly understand now. I love that. We're all, are we all learning? I would honestly hate to, being a preacher's tough enough, but to be a politician, to have a, rec a voting record, to have everything that you've ever said on tape. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I changed my mind too much or whatever. I mean, I, I, but I'm learning. I'm growing. And Peter said, I used to think it was this way, but look, I most certainly understand now. And what does he understand? That God shows no partiality. Why should you not show partiality? There's several reasons. One of which we'll look at in a second, we read it at the outset, is that it dishonors the poor. It dishonors the one that gets left out, looked over, voted off the island. That's a good enough reason. But when James says, my beloved brothers, he's saying, this is not like Jesus. Don't show partiality because God does it. We look at the outward appearance. We receive the face, but God looks at the heart. And in this parable, the setting and I love this, it's very Jesus-like. He gives a point, and what is the point? Don't show partiality. Don't discriminate, don't show favoritism. And then he tells us this parable, I think like Jesus would. And in this story that's a simple one, that's so simple maybe we gloss over it, James gives us the setting. And the setting, you gotta do a little background, but the setting is the synagogue, it's the assembly, it's the, the ecclesia, it's the gathering of the people. And at the time, the setting would be like this, the pulpit, they didn't call it a pulpit back then, but the pulpit would be sort of in the front center of the room. And the tabernacle with the scrolls that were high and lifted up would be exalted up to the front center of the room. And the seating was as follows, very simply, the men would sit along the sides and the women and the children were up in the balcony. And in this story, we have three characters. I bet you didn't catch the third. But the first character 
is the rich man. And he's wearing the bling. As I studied it, it's probably, he's probably wearing purple. It's fine linen. It's silky smooth. It's really nice. And he's saying, hey, this is who I am. I've got resources. I've got influence. Likely that he could have had some type of entourage. And he gets the preferential seating. We have friends that are members at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. You could imagine there's a strata there and a lot of important people. One friend told us about the day that they sat next to Britney Spears at Bel Air, at the church there in Hollywood Press, rather. There's a story from long ago when the great Ronald Reagan and Nancy arrived at the church, which was their church, and they're escorted in, and there were some college students. Now, all of our kids are gone for the summer, but there were some college students, and it's true of Fonda, and they like to sit down front. And these college kids had that seat where Ronald and Nancy Reagan normally seat, sit, and one of the ushers asked them to get up. And Ronald and Nancy, one of my favorite presidents, were seated. But the story's told that the pastor, the story's told by Bill Bright, the pastor gets up and walks to those college students and says, that'll never happen again at this church. The poor man in James' story is in soiled, shabby, dirty clothes. He doesn't get a seat, not a seat of preference. Sit at my feet. Sit back there, sit at my feet. Let me ask you, who sits at your feet? Man, you like to think your family does, right? That's not the answer. That doesn't happen. That, that happens in your mind, right? The family just sits at your feet and feasts at your worth. They're totally transfixed to your leadership. Who sits at your feet at the house? Tell me. Your dog. I put, put the cookies on the bottom shelf, right, for the summer crowd. Your dog sits at your feet. Not a place, not a place of respect. So I've, I've said this. Let me tell you two things the story is not about. The first one I've said, it's not about seeing. James doesn't say you're not going to notice. I mean, how can you not notice if bling comes in? You, you're funny, some of you. I'm funny. But in the course of our church, particularly when we've been here at this building, we've had some people come in that some of you've noticed, a senator or famous uh, physician, or we've had a news anchor. Um, two or three weeks ago, um, a, a punk kid named Chip Henderson, a pastor of a small struggling church called Pine Lake, showed up, right? Why was he here, by the way? Does anybody know? He wanted to hear some good preaching. That's why he was here. That's why he came to Fondren that Sunday. But he sat right here. It was funny to notice some of you notice him. Right? We, we look around and we say, who are the important people? And James is not saying, be stupid. He's not saying, don't notice. He's saying, don't show special treatment. Another thing James is not saying to us, and this is the one we're guilty of in reading the story, he's not saying it's about rich or poor. As, listen, as much as it seems like it, he's not saying that. But why did he go hard? I always take the history, the culture, and the context. I try to say that often, but the reason that James goes hard here, and he's going to do it a couple of times, particularly in chapter 5, but he goes hard here because what was happening is the Christians were being brought in and the power structures were led by the rich. And there was extreme persecution going on. And history itself tells us, and Jesus taught, that it's a lot easier to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, to accept him, to receive him, to walk with him, 
if we realize that we're, it's not all about us and we're puffed up, high and haughty. But it's not as we could think about rich or poor. James, I've said before, is sort of the Proverbs of the New Testament. Men love James, men love Proverbs. It's good for, if men's group, you're looking for something to do, read Proverbs, read James. It changes the subject all the time, but it gives good practical advice to living. And our scripture, the Bible that you hold in front of you is chock full of prayers. It's hard to read an entire book, old or new, without prayers in it. But you know in the book of Proverbs, let me flip it, the James of the Old Testament, there's only one prayer in all of Proverbs. Do you know it? It's in chapter 30. And not Solomon, but another man prays this prayer. He says, Lord, I ask two things of you. That you keep lying and falsehood far from me. And that you give me neither poverty nor riches. And he explains why, he prays why in his prayer. Because Lord, if I am poor, I will dishonor you and steal. And if I am rich, I will disown you and say, who is the Lord? Now, I want to preach that at Fondren Church. And we're different. Some of us maybe can be entrusted with greater wealth. More than others. Money can affect us differently. Some flaunt it. Some you would almost never know. And do you know that the most generous people, studies show, not just religious studies, but charitable giving surveys show that the rich people are not the most generous people? And that per capita we're living in the most generous state in America. Not the richest, right? It's about what? It's about showing special treatment, not noticing, but showing special treatment. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29, he would say this, and I love this, listen to me. He says, think about who you were before you were called. And I know a friend whose life really got off the tracks. And we've talked this week. And I think one of the things he was probably guilty of by his own admittance is, he forgot who he was before he was called. And he was doing the Jesus thing so that Jesus would make much of him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. Think about who you were, brothers and sisters. Think about who you were before you were called. He says this, not many, among, not many of you were wise among us, wise according to the world. Not many were influencers. Not many were born of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the weak, the strong. God chooses the lowly and the despised. That's for our church. Real faith, real faith is not the language of the lingo, it's not knowing the right answers. It's hearing the word that's implanted in you, 
It's receiving it, it's remembering it as we talked about last week, it's responding to it. And James, the more I study this book, the more I see that James really was connected to Jesus. Action, action, action. It's not a boring life. If your life is boring, you're not following Jesus. I'm gonna keep saying that. And James, as he talks about faith being real and hitting the street where people need it the most, I think of Matthew 25, you know this, where Jesus talks about the end. And Jesus talks about those who genuinely follow him, not those who just say that they do, or not those who just attend to service, but those who really follow him. And he says, and we're living this world going, Jesus, where are you? And he's saying he's right here. He's right here among us. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I needed clothing. I was naked. You gave me clothes. I was a stranger. You took me in. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you came and you visited me. That's the kind of body of believers that I want us to be. Nick Crawford and I talked a couple of weeks ago. We said, keep each other accountable. Keep each other accountable. Let's write our brother a letter. Our brother who is in jail, who we hope won't be there long, but he started coming to our church. He's, we started helping him as we could. And he messed up and he did something dumb, probably more than one dumb thing. And he wrote Nick and I, maybe some of our other staff, a letter, a handwritten letter, a two, almost three page letter. And he said, Pastor, I'm so sorry. Let me tell you what your church, the church has meant to me. And let me apologize. Thank you for giving me a hand out, a hand up. And I'm sorry for what I've done. Honestly, I didn't even know the wrong that he had done. I had to ask. But I said, Nick, let's write our brother. Let, let's write a letter. He's, he's talking about listing the sermons online. He's requesting Molly list. He's requesting songs. You get that list. He's got songs that he wants us to sing in his absence. And when he comes back, we can't be a church that forgets the people who've been voted off the island. Now the Bible, Jesus in particular talks about two kinds of poor. There's the wealth, non-wealth poor. And there's no virtue in just poverty, okay? But there's spiritual poverty, and you know from the greatest sermon ever preached in Matthew chapter five, blessed are the poor in spirit. That idea is that there ought not to be any pride among us, no pride in our hearts. When we look at the outside, when we label and when we divide, we're in sin. When we discriminate, show partiality or favoritism. When a rich person comes in, instead of saying, hey, that person's got it made, we should look and we, sh we can notice and simply say, there's someone else that God has made. I've been able to lock arms with some people of great means through the years. And what I've learned is that people we think have it made don't really have it made. And it sometimes can be the very thing that keeps them from God. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated, we acknowledged, most of us did, at least in pop culture, the 30th year for the great movie Top Gun. Can you believe that? Now, who feels old right now when you know, okay, let me tell you where I was. I was a college student, 
freshman at Mississippi State. I spent that summer in San Diego where the movie was filmed. It's why Top Gun is my, one of the reasons Top Gun is my favorite movie. And we were out one summer in North, um, North County, San Diego, along the coast, uh, close to Rancho Santa Fe and Del Mar. We were in this little community one day, and we were playing wiffle ball. How many of you love some, just a good game of wiffle ball? Isn't that great? Who invented wiffle ball, and what were they thinking, right? Let's, let's, let's make a long yellow bat, plastic bat, right, with a white ball with holes in it, and let's call it wiffle ball. I'm sure it was two guys talking. The other guy's like, why don't we spell it with an H, right? Wiffle ball. If you look at the definition, I've studied this this week. If you look at the definition of wiffle ball, it's, or wiffle rather, or whiff, whiff is W-H-I-F-F. And some of you know what whiff is. You have to blush. It's when you get a scent or smell of something, okay? A tad little scent, that's a whiff. Or if you swing at something and miss it, there's a whiff, W-H-I-F. But wiffle ball is spelled W-I-F-F-L-E. We were playing wiffle ball one day, 18, 19 years old in San Diego, and a gentleman walks up to us, and he's got on shades and glasses, and it gets cold in San Diego in the summer, aren't you jealous? And he had a big old sweatshirt on, his alma mater or something. And he, he engages in wiffle ball, this good player, by the way, good athlete, and we learned later it was, it was Bill Murray. I played wiffle ball with Bill Murray. Is that cool or not or what? But you know, he's a dude. He's a dude. Maybe, maybe you have a brush with greatness, as we call her. So you've met some celebrity or somebody famous. But what is it in us that brags about that or talks about it or are so fascinated by it? We want to attach ourselves to people that we think are important. And some of you know what I'm about to say quickly, but there was a man in this community named Jason who was about, if he stood erect, he'd be about six foot five. But life was starting to get the best of him. He was in poor health, he didn't have a home. He would crunch over. When I first met Jason, he told me he was the seventh cousin of Andre the Giant. First of all, is there such thing as seventh cousin and would you ever know? So we got off on the wrong foot from the beginning. But I saw some of you, occasionally I would buy him lunch or talk to him, but I saw some of you love on Jason. And I think, do your best to give him what he needed. And I remember the Sunday when there was a sermon that was really important. I hope they all are, they should be, but there was one that I was just like feeling like we needed to hear. And when I walked up front, Jason was sitting right there. My first thought was, don't distract people. Not long after that, probably two or three months later, Jason, you may have seen on the news, was hit by a car and killed. He stepped right out in traffic on I-55, just up here. James, like Jesus, is saying, everybody matters. Everybody has worth. If you're about to buy a car, and we did this week, if you're about to buy a car, many of you look at what, what? What do you look at? It's called what? To get the value of the car, it's called a blue book, right? And you look at that, and why is it called a blue book? I thought about that this week. Because you want the car, you look to find out how much it is, you see the price, and you're depressed, right? It's a blue book. <laughs> and we want to know, we want to know the value. What is the worth of something? And James is saying, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to be a Jesus church, 
then Bill Murray and Jason matter. And they matter equally to God. And I am at times unworthy to be your leader when I know some of the thoughts that I have and some of the ways that I want to show favoritism to people. My wife reminds me often we treat everybody the same. Oh, how we should. There is a guy that we've known for years. His wife actually graduated from Jackson Prep so many years ago. They're a little bit younger than I am. And I've known, I knew him when I worked with Campus Crusade for Christ. We did skits and fun stuff together through con at conferences around the country. I knew he was super talented, but little did I know that he would become really, really famous. Men, baseball fans, you're gonna know who I'm talking about. It's this guy, I think we might have a few photos. His name is Gar Rines, and he's called Batting Stance Guy. He's been on David Letterman several years ago, and all the Major League Baseball players love this guy. Roll a few pictures. Gar is from the Bay Area, Oakland, married a girl from Jackson, and he imitates Major League Baseball players. And he is a riot. YouTube, this guy, he's a YouTube sensation. And guard, he'll go to Dodgers, Padres, A's, Yankees, Cardinals, Reds. He's been all around. And baseball players love him. Some of you have seen this guy. And they, he impersonates the batting stances of all these guys. And he just nails it. I haven't seen anything like it in my life. To me, he's the best impersonator I've ever known. And obviously, it's the least marketable skill in America, or at least he thought it was. <laughs> And I don't know his what his pocketbook's like. Uh, Susan talks to Rebecca some. But they're doing well, and he's a pretty famous dude, and he's living, he's living the life. But here's the point I want to make. Gar is a master imitator. He sees, and he studies, and he's fascinated. And he, unlike what James talked about in chapter one, he doesn't look in the mirror of these guys and forget, walk away and forget. He actually does it. He works on it. He practices, and he nails it. And we're told to be imitators of Jesus. In fact, when James says don't show partiality, Jesus wouldn't, so we don't. And the way we are to be like Jesus, we imitate his life. But we don't study and stop. We look, receive, remember, and we respond. So as we close, I would say two things from James. One from verse 8 and one from verse 13. First, let love be your law. Let love be your law. Chapter 1, he talks about looking intently into the perfect law of liberty. And here he talks about the royal law of love. Peter would say in 1 Peter 1, love each other sincerely from the heart. It's not receiving the face. It's loving each other from the heart. Community cannot be microwaved. I want to say it, it's going to sound like a church commercial from a paid pastor, but get in a group, get in a circle. Maybe the summer's not the time for you, but we're weeks away, but talk to Nick Crawford, look online, get in a group, get in a circle, and get to know people beyond the pews. Love each other sincerely from the heart. Let love be the law. Secondly, let mercy be your message. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Hey, all of us who judged in the darkness of our heart, we we label, we divide, and we look at the outside. In our judgment, we miss God's mercy. And this week I sat in my office with somebody that I really want to get to know. And he 
came to see me because he was hurting because he had done something really stupid. And he felt horrible about it. And this grown man broke down in my office. And I reached across the small table. And I said to him, my brother, you confess and you repent and you will find his mercy. Because Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, God is a refuge. His arms are underneath us. Now, I don't know about you, but I need his arms underneath me because I stumble and fall. You know what's horrible about me? I'll judge some of you while I'm stumbling and falling because your sin is more interesting than mine, I think. But I need God's arms underneath me. What a, what a great picture. Parents, lovers, friends, physicians, caregivers. Many of us know a genuine tender story of holding someone, holding a head up or holding someone, having our arms underneath them. And that's God's mercy. And mercy triumphs. It is far better than judgment.